1: The Britflix.com Podcast I'm Stuart Wright and this is the Britflix.com Podcast On this podcast, rather than critique or score films out of 5 or 10 or tell you what we love or what we hate I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things or I get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me Five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes. And if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. It all helps. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today I've got to meet Hope Dixon-Leach. Hello, Hope.
2: Hi, Stuart. It's lovely to be here.
1: Indeed, lovely to be here over the Skype airwaves together, talking about your film, The Leveling. Um, Do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what that's about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So The Leveling is a, it's a drama which kind of plays out a bit like a thriller. And it's Mm -hmm. about uh, a young woman called Clover who returns home to her family dairy farm when she hears that her brother has died. And... um, when she gets there she has to face her father who she hasn't spoken to for about seven years after a big falling out and she is there to kind of find out what happened to her brother but also um what's really been going on in the farm in her absence which forces her to kind of confront her dad and unpick what went wrong in their relationship as well so it's a it's a kind of um Emotional detective story, I think, uh, with a with a little bit of real detective story going on at the same time.
1: Now I know we shouldn't put too much store in this because because it's interesting. You, you you say like drama with thriller elements because the the, the fantastic algorithms of IMDb are telling me um, if I like The Leveling, then then I might like Lady Macbeth, Prevenge, Roar, and A Quiet Passion, which. <laughs> kind of, kind of stretched don't you, the drama through to, bloody hell, like horror genre. You know, in, you in, know all...
2: we all came, we all came out at the same time, so I think that's probably what it is more than anything else. But um, but I like that idea that that you can kind of go, ooh, where does where does it live amongst those?
1: Yeah, because it does it does sit in a funny way. It does sit it, it, thematically. It can sit anywhere between those four.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, if you want to watch women kind of being anything from furious to angry to you know brooding I think uh to you know cannibalistic I think I think we got you covered in those <laughs> films I think that's kind of a good a good roundup
1: now now you wrote and directed this film so so from it from a writing point of view what was the sort of first seed that that that, that, be, that went to be on to become the leveling as far as a story
2: I think you know I think I've lost people in my life I've you know people have died um, who were very close to me in very unexpected and sort of quick tragic circumstances and and I sort of I feel I've always felt this kind of strange period after that and it happens even when you're expecting someone to die as well but I think there's this 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 weird time afterwards when there's this kind of period when when nothing nothing else really matters and you get to kind of Lose yourself in this world of, I would say grief, but I don't think it is really grief because I don't think you're, you know, it's not grief as we know it. It's not kind of tearing your hair out and, you know, it's this strange kind of stasis. And it's always felt to me like because of this kind of frozen nature of that time, there's an opportunity to reevaluate and for things to feel different and look different. And so that was the kind of the beginning of this story, it was kind of taking someone who. Uh, wanted to really make the most of that period which has been me at various points in my life and just mm. kind of shout, shout and scream a bit and just kind of go well, why can't things be different like what well, this has got us to you know mm. um and you know that's that's true of kind of political traumas and you know all kinds of things as well yeah. you know just, just that kind of strange period of like what the hell is going on and, and couldn't we do things differently and we've got this great chance to do it differently and and actually putting someone in that time and and kind of seeing how that might play out and sort of having them go through this experience where they they do get to find out things and they do speak out and and just discovering I think really the the fragility of of people and the complexity of how things actually work um, and how that feeds into you know and and kind of shapes our our natural instinct to want things to be better than they are, you know,
1: Does that so, make sense? No, 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 sure. No. And it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's easy to forget sometimes that, that, that sudden change in our lives can often have been grieving for something that's gone as much as losing a person in our life. But we don't, we don't treat the two the same usually, I think.
2: Absolutely. I think, I think it's, I think grief is a, you know, I think we, we kind of give it this this kind of um this privileged position as belonging to to kind of death, but actually, I think you know we lose things all the time, as the Buddhists would say we die you know a million times in our lives, and mm. we kind of transform ourselves through this and I think that you know I think it's really important to kind of recognize that and acknowledge you know how change happens that's something that I'm really fascinated about like how do you actually change you know is there an inevitability that kind of goes along with being human that you know or actually you know how does change work and I think cinema is a really fascinating place for that and screenwriting particularly I just I'm sort of always the second act is always that my kind of area of 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 uh pain and you know fascination around this idea of consequences and change um, because you know that's obviously something that we're supposed to we, you know that's what the second act does but it's it's very hard to to see those things in our lives and to actually kind of make sense of them in any kind of real narrative space so it's that sort of trying to find that connection between kind of our real experiences in, in life and in the world and then actually how we tell the stories of those in ways that are kind of gripping kind of narratively but also feel truthful emotionally.
1: No, no, weirdly, I was t- I was tweeting a critic friend of mine about this today sort of saying that, unfortunately, screenplays often have to make sense whereas real life rarely makes sense. <laughs> it's the yeah, kind, exactly. It, it's kind of the big differences, I think.
2: I think it's something we want from our stories, isn't it? You know, yeah. and I think kind of why they're so important to us, because I think, you know, we we very little makes sense. But, you know, and there are some films that manage to do the not making sense in a really satisfying way, but so few of them, mm. you know, I think, I think it's so easy when you're starting to think that you can reinvent this kind of format and kind of go, oh, and, you know, things don't tie up in real life, so that's fine, it's not going to happen in my film. And you watch it and you just kind of go, oh, God, but it's such a... Unsatisfying watch, you know, and it doesn't feel any realer really? just because, because it has that that sort of dis- that disconnect, you know, that doesn't make it feel any more lifelike or emotionally truthful, actually, than things that are, you know, that do make sense, you know, and and I think there are plenty of ways to be ambiguous and to embrace the kind of the kind of non tied up nature of things without actually having to kind of Provide a a story that's just frustrating to watch as a viewer, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if you if you're exploring this this nature of 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 sort of change and loss and stuff, where how did you land on this 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 the farm as the sort of crucible for for your drama?
2: Well, I grew up in a city. I grew up in Hong Kong, and I have family who live in farms and in kind of cold country houses in the north of England, and Mm I whenever I'd visit them, I would just be kind of slightly horrified, you know, this sort of girl from a a hot Asian city kind of at at the kind of, um, and so it always slightly fascinated me, this kind of the difference in the way of life and trying to make sense of that. And I was always a bit sort of scared of it. And I think there's something around that that was, that felt important, like actually putting a family in a situation where there aren't very many people and there aren't the distractions that you have. Um, when you live in a city, you know, the kind of social and if if they're actually going to have to, you know, push themselves together and, and come up against each other and actually face things down, you know, it felt like isolating them was a really important sort of aspect. I'm a, I'm a big Bergman fan and I like yeah. the kind of, you know, let's put people in a house and <laughs> see what
1: happens. No, 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 uh, no.
2: And uh, so that and then and then it just the farming thing came a little bit later actually the kind of the drama and the family sort of was the beginning and then um and then actually what happened was the floods happened and uh in somerset and this is all set in somerset on the levels which is a very flat area as is Mm. suggested um where which was flooded very badly in 2014 um and this was when i was sort of putting the idea together and it was just the photos were just absolutely kind of extraordinary, this kind of post-apocalyptic kind of vision of, of England. And I just thought, God, that's something that really appeals to me sort of aesthetically and cinematically and feels like a story we haven't seen before. And
1: um without a doubt, should I should add up because, you know, I'm very aware of the floods we had. But the news mm. never took us down to that granular level and in, in a weird way I felt like I felt like your film was had a little bit of education for us there as to how <laughs> unfor- how unforgiving it was to the down to that level.
2: well, do you know that I'm so glad to hear you say that because actually that was the thing that was really important to me. I think there was a it would have been very easy to just kind of rely on these tropes and these sort of images and but actually what happened was I went down and I met um, some farmers and uh, was introduced to them through someone, you know, we had to kind of win, it, win ourselves over, um, win them over, and persuade them we weren't the, you know, down there to do some kind of expose, which is completely understandable. Mm. Um, but uh, so, you know, when we started talking to them and when I arrived, it was the summer and so everything, all the floods had gone, but everything was empty. There were all these caravans because they were living in caravans and there were, contractors, you know, vans outside houses and skips everywhere and, you know, because no one could live there, you know. So it was this really strange space. And I thought, wow, that is what that weird grief period feels like for me. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like this is the moment, exactly the moment. And talking to the farmers who were so generous with their stories and so articulate, you know, emotionally, actually, about what they've been through, I think partly because they had to because – You know, a lot of them had sort of tried to tell their stories, if not on the news, then, you know, on social media and tried to reach out and reach out to each other and find ways. And it was sort of staggering to hear about the lives they were living and the fact they weren't in the news any day anymore, you know, and it was kind of like, but this goes on, you know, and this is something that will happen again and again because the floods are happening more and more and all over all over the country. And, you know, and it was just it was really such a rich textural thing, but also felt like a story that that was just interesting and relevant and important, you know, and and just so I was so lucky to have these, you know, these real people to to mm. share their stories with me, which gave it so much texture and really helped me kind of actually place this drama in a world that was amplifying what I wanted the drama to be about. Do you know what I mean? Connecting the the context of the story with the with the actual story itself and that i love in cinema i always love it when films can find a place or a time that so beautifully kind
1: of um
2: it's like a metaphor or for you know for what, what what's actually going on in the film without and, yeah. a
1: doubt no i mean i felt like i felt like the, the 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 backdrop of of the floods was 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 like this this family this area are just shit out of luck you know, it's mm. like, it would have been enough to try and recover after the floods, but then to have a death in the family as well. is just, that's just not fair. You know? <laughs> yeah. You, you, you and, know and what uh, I mean? I don't, I don't mean that there is any fairness in the world, but in terms of where you take us in, in terms of what's going on, you're like. Yeah. You're,
2: I mean, And I was aware of that. And I, I wanted to be careful not to kind of just be like, and misery after misery after yeah. misery, you know, cause I, I sort of, I don't, think the world is like that actually mm. you know I mean I think of course the world is like that but I, I don't think those are necessarily the stories that we need to unpick to mm. make the world a better place you know what I mean I think um but actually one of the things that was really um oh I'm going to blow one of the plot points now Stuart I'm just gonna uh, I, you find out pretty quickly so so obviously the son has has killed himself and I think mm. one of the things that made it really important um was actually discovering how high the suicide rate is amongst farmers and amongst young men, you know, and just realizing this, this was something that really was an important conversation to be having. And, um and, you know, all these charities that are set up to help farmers and actually kind of now I engage a bit with the with the kind of farming community, you know, like right now with the bad weather that's going on. um And, you know, all these things that they're, they're there for each other in a way that they haven't been able to be. Before, because of social media and because of these things, you know, they're really lifelines for these communities.
0: Yeah.
2: And I think they're also aware, you know, they know the stats now and they know the dangers. And so they're trying to figure it out, you know. And it's just, it just felt like a kind of a privilege to be able to be part of that story, you know, and to tell that story a bit because it just feels like, like you know, it's a community we can't do without, you know, they make food. We need food, you know. <laughs> And it's very easy to kind of be critical of of kind of farmers and, you know, the NFU and farming techniques and blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, there are entire cities that can't buy lovely locally sourced food. (laughs) That's how most people live, you know. And actually, if we want things to be different, we really need to help the farmers because their model is, you know, it's, it's kind of disastrous, you know, they're they really need help. We need to pay more for our food. We, you know, there are just so many ways in which we need to help them. And, you know, and I think they've, they've kind of, yeah, I just, so that was, it was just really the more I learned about it, the more I just thought this is a story that relates to the story that I've already created and feels Mm -hmm. like an important conversation to be having and not just one that is kind of, Misery porn, which was, was of course kind of...
1: no, I was gonna say you're, you're the, the character of Clover, who is the kind of prodigal daughter returning, who who gets to be basically the audience's eyes and ears as to mm-hmm. what's gone on. She she has I guess I guess a level of hope in or or even maybe optimism is probably the, the, the better word because she doesn't know any different, but then obviously what she learns and, and, and what she understands by the end of it shapes where she goes next but certainly her it seemed like her role was was to to offer us offer us something more than just like you say burying ourselves in the misery of it all um absolutely
2: you know I think you meet young younger farmers today younger people generally (laughs) she says from her kind of feeling slightly aged sitting you know sitting down here today but um you know that it's so brilliant when you know there are these people, and they are there are different ways to do things you know and and lots of people believe that that is the new way to do thing, and they 're living their lives that way and that 's so inspiring from people for people like me who are kind of sitting there in the middle and kind of you know can see how the old people older generations have always behaved in a certain way and how we 've got to that point and mm. feel kind of caught up in the kind of exhaustion of of trying to how do you figure out how to make change and then along come young people with these you know, these energy and these ideas and these convictions that there are different ways to do things. And of course, we can make it work. And Clover, to me, you know, of course, she's she's got to go through this emotional response to her her brother's death and all these sort of things. But, you know, that is very much a part of who she is. She thinks things can be different. And, you know, and I think that was sort of crucial uh, to understanding who she is and and why she's had such a hard time with her father because you know it's very difficult to have two points of view both strongly held you know mm. two opposing points of view in the same household so I think that was kind of um, that was sort of crucial element to what to what keep... for
1: you were the, were the sort of main sort of storytelling challenges because obviously if you're if you're soaking up all this new information from from the farmer's stories but you've also got this drama to play out which is Clover's sort of grief for her brother and then realization about what she has to do for in terms of the farm mm. they're not the, they're not one and the same thing are they so how, how did you no, ha, what, so... what were the challenges there for you
2: Well, I think it was all about finding a kind of structure that worked. And Mm. I think, you know, I sort of, I'm someone who I like, I bring in scaffolding and I bring in tricks and I like, you know, lots of toys and things when I'm writing. And there was just no way on the budget level we were writing for that I could do that. So I knew this was going to have to be a kind of character driven drama, you know, essentially. And that kind of terrified me. So I think what I clung to, because I like structure and I like, you know, these things, was was the idea of giving her this really strong desire to find out what happened. And once I'd kind of given her this role as detective, um, it just, it felt like something that worked in terms of just organizing them, like an organizing principle for all the material, because that way I could kind of put all the stuff I knew in you know, in the the farm story and, you know, bring in her own behavior into how she was uncovering this and how she was responding to her own discoveries and whether she wanted to take them on board or, you know, or she couldn't or she was in denial. So, you know, I think that was a really interesting organizing principle. And I think the other one that was really helpful was, was thinking about the different timelines. So thinking about what are the time periods. So we have right now, which is, you know, the week following the death. Mm. And then you have the time period, which is, um, you know, the week before, which was, you know, the night he died and trying to figure out actually what happened on that night. And then beyond that, you then have, you know, what happened when the floods came to the farm. Mm. And then beyond that, there's a kind of distant history of what's happened in the the past with her and her father. Um, So it was kind of really helpful thinking about how all those different time periods, you know, which of those she was uncovering. Um, and which kind of were, were giving her sort of factual information and which were giving her emotional, um, you know, information, as it were. You know, so it was kind of like, you know, there's sort of figuring out, you know, it's it wasn't as simple as A, B, C. I have to uncover that t- time period and then that one and then that one. But, you know, so I knew there was going to be darting backwards and forwards between them. But sort of figuring out what was the narrative that she was trying to Complete in her head, and how these other time periods were kind of forcing their way into that narrative, I guess, and she was going to have to confront them all at different points. Um, does that make sense? I feel like I've suddenly gone technical and weird, but no, um, no, that
1: made perfect sense. No, because I think she speaks to a truth that I think for those that don't work in farming kind of understand. It's sort of, and it's, it's even more interesting because she's just returning to a farm, but nevertheless going away to university for a year or two it's like she's never lived there and yeah. people treat her like she's like, as if I've arrived there. And that, and I found that I thought that spoke to a truth about, about how people are suspicious of, of new like what we talked about earlier about new ideas and change. Cause here's she going, of course it's possible. Of course it's, possible. and they're like, you don't know anything cause you've been over there. And, yeah. and I thought that was a nice, nice challenge because that that's in addition to whatever she's going through with her father, she's got the whole local community going you don't know anything don't try and tell us anything
2: yeah yeah well and but and that's some of that's in her head but I think that um place you know I think that's you know time and place I guess I you know w- was also crucial you know as you say the fact that she has not been present and then she was present because when I wrote it there were other scenes that took us off the farm and they went and kind of went oh really to this- yeah, and um, we shot them, and then when we were editing them, it just felt like you know the energy died every time we went somewhere else. It felt like it was so important to just be in that space, and right. because I think what I'd worked out was I I knew so exactly why we were in each space for each scene. So mm. you know the house, it was like the bottom floor of the house is where the floods have been, you know upstairs are her bedrooms, and it represents this kind of past that is growing dusty now, you know, but it's, it's the sort of family life that they used to have. And then there's the attic where kind of is the deep past and the memories and do they dare go up there? So I kind of, I treated the spaces very much like, you know, narrative. engines, I guess. And then the, the caravan that they live in, you know, which she just does not want to go into because she doesn't want to be in that space with her father because it's like, you know, she's run away. And so her finally ending up in that and then being sort of really together in a tiny space that's very fragile and very, you know, useless, really, <laughs> you know, this kind of terrible, uh, dysfunctional space. And that's the space they're going to have to you know bash it out in now you know but also all around the farm each kind of different you know there's a place where the, the cows get killed there's a place where the cows get milked you know it was all kind of I you know I love a good metaphor and so I kind of I really wanted to make sure each place you know I understood why we were going there mm. kind of in the story so um yeah
1: no I agree I mean I think going into the caravan is probably where for me given you've mentioned Bergman it feels most Bergman-esque because you've you've concentrated the claustrophobia of being trapped on a farm, as it were. And like you say, mm. the fact you chose not to use the bits where you go off, I think was a brilliant decision because we're forever trapped there, even though you, there's nobody stopping us physically. Yeah. Um, but you make, the film makes us believe, that makes us feel that we're trapped, as it were. And then the, the caravan exemplifies and exaggerates the claustrophobia, doesn't it? Between this, this, this fractured relationship that can... Maybe or maybe not be fixed. Now, the father was, I think, was um, was was. I mean, let's, we should probably say Ellie Kendrick plays uh, Clover, um, mm-hmm. so maybe talk about her first. Was was that was that your first choice? Was that or was that was that was that a casting that came out of going out to see who you could find?
2: No, I wanted Ellie. I mean, once we started looking and sort of doing research, you know, Ellie was the one I knew was Clover, and when she came in, she came in and read for us, and I just kind of. You know, I just knew she's just so, so brilliant and so unusual and so capable, you know, and so strong. And like as an actor, her craft is really extraordinary, but she's also strong enough to be really vulnerable. And she really gave so much for this film. You know, she became she became Clover in a in a kind of way that I think was quite frightening for her because she is a person very different from Clover and, and um. You know, she really figured her out and, and uh, sort of emotionally did so much homework. And because I think what was really important was, you know, as we say that Clover's kind of main goal was to find stuff out, you know, that was her, you know, she's always asking questions. And when she's not asking questions, she tended to be kind of cleaning up. So it was kind of really interesting to kind of Mm. think about that, but also to figure out what were the like the differences in terms of the, you know, we just couldn't have her crying on screen for an hour and a half. You know, just kind of would, would have been a bit exhausting and, and totally untrue to you know how grief really feels. And yeah. and I think um, so. It was about kind of unpicking and making sure that each scene felt significantly different, and we really understood where she was in her in her journey in each scene. So, you know, obviously, as you know, we shot it we shot that out of order, and um, not that you know about this film, but you know that's how films get made. Of course, so it was, <laughs> it was very. Um, uh, you know, so that was really important that we kind of and she did masses of homework for that, and I did masses of homework. So every time we came to a scene, we knew exactly where we were uh, for her kind of journey and and what.
1: How How was she as someone to direct them? What was your What was the relationship between the two of you when you come to shoot the scenes?
2: She was completely brilliant. I mean, I you know, she if she didn't believe something,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, she would tell me that, and that was. You know, brilliant. And also really good is that I was the writer as well, because then I could be like, okay, we can just lose that, you know. And it was like getting to that point of trust. But she, mm. she knew, she contributed, she got it. Um, she's, you know, tough on herself, but also uh, a total pro. You know, she's she couldn't have been a better collaborator, really. And and David, um, who plays Aubrey, David, David, David Trouton. David Trouton Yeah. um, Was fantastic. Very different type of actor. Um, Has done a lot of stage work, does a lot of radio work um, and is just, you know, a total pro, but also not someone like Ellie who kind of, you know, he wanted me to just tell him what, you know, he knew what he was doing, but it was like, he would he would do it on the day and we would figure it out and he would nail it. And but he was also, you know, there was one scene where he was just like, I don't understand why, he's, you know, and it you know, it was great. It was like we we kind of we had that space mm. to, to figure it out. There was no sense in which I was kind of like, you must do as I say and, you know, just do it, you know. Mm. So um and he gave me a big hug at the end and kind of told me I was an actor's director, which was a wonderful thing. I, I,
1: I thought he was amazing casting. You know, he's a face people will recognise from TV, and yeah. if they're theatre people, will recognise him. But he he perform he performed that kind of just long drawn out devastation in almost everything he did. Whether even when he was trying to be upbeat, you felt there was a weight dragging him down every time. Yeah.
2: And that's the thing about him, his whole body performs, you know, he's so physical. And, you know, I just love that about him. And, um, you know, he was great. I mean, the only thing I ever really had to say to him kind of was, you know, smaller, you know, we're not we're not in a theater. So it's all right. You know, which he would always laugh at. But it was, you know, he's just fantastic. And. You know, we spent a day doing the scene in the attic, just that scene, and it was just a total joy. You know, giving him the space to to do that. And I did do one thing with them, which I'd um, which I'd read that uh, Gus Van Sant did in Milk, and I just okay. always wanted to try it. Which is where you once you've got it, once you've got the kind of the, the scene you need, you yeah. then shoot the actors not saying anything. So you can like, so we'll shoot Ellie saying her lines and then we'll shoot David saying his lines. And then we'll keep the camera on David and get Ellie to say her lines. And David isn't allowed to say his lines. So he'll just have to respond emotionally, but but not verbally. And, you know, I think actually we didn't, I don't think we used very much of it in the edit, but it was really useful because I think it helped, it helped in lots of ways to just kind of really be present behind the lines. You know what I mean? And, uh, no, I like think it, makes... spe- it
1: speaks to the idea of that that we, if you, if, if if creative things are about exploring, then if you've got a chance to mm. explore other possibilities, whether you use them or not, you've at least you've at least rubbed them out. You know, if you never try it, you don't know whether it could be useful. Yeah, you?
2: but but also just I think I think it just meant when he was doing silence mm. as part of his lines or whatever. You know, it was like it was a whole new level of right. Of, you. You know. And, and that was just great, you know, so I think it was, um, you know, it just as given that this is a family who, you know, don't ever say the things they really mean to each other. You know, I think it was it just allowed us to, to kind of build that into their performances in a really nice way. So when we had time, we, we tried to do some of that, which was um, which was fun as well.
1: No, it's nice. It's nice. That, I mean, if, if it's something you wanted to try and you had the opportunity, it's great that you're able to do it, I think. Now, um, I'm guessing you shot largely on location, if not entirely on location, is it?
2: Entirely on location. uh, I thought I'd been really clever writing it for basically one location. Of course, uh, that's, you know, wasn't so clever because a working dairy farm needs to be milking cows several times a day and that's noisy and then the cleanup is noisy and takes a long time and, you know... A working dairy farmer probably doesn't really want you on their farm for four <laughs> weeks. So um, so we actually ended up using a different interior. Yeah. Uh, all the interior stuff is a different house somewhere else. And then we used two other farms for some of the fields and the exterior cow stuff. So it was a kind of a bit of a mishmash of, of farms, a sort mm. of patchwork farm as uh, Rachel the producer would say um, but that worked really well actually for the, the kind of practical scheduling because it meant you know we weren't really um, driving farmers too crazy by invading every day with this kind of enormous troop of people getting in their way so I uh, so actually you know it was good but it wasn't quite the you know I thought oh brilliant you know this is so simple low budget la 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 no company moves but uh, actually you know You learn learn that one location actually may not be the most efficient way to shoot a low budget, Um, which was interesting.
1: No, Um, well, well, you never would have known. And the fact that you're saying you you were having to work around a working farm makes perfect sense that you would (laughs) take advantage of other places while, while the farm is working.
2: Yeah, totally. And then we also got to experience the different kinds of uh, cows there are, which was quite fun because our cows on our hero farm were, were very nice. They only got milked twice a day, but there was another farm we shot some stuff in, including the final scene and their cows get milked four times a day. So they're much more aggressive because their hormones are, you know, they've got a lot more hormones going on and they were just kind of really big, scary cows. So it was mm. this, it was just all quite funny. We all became quite, you know wise about the ways of cows by the end of it it was it was good
1: so um what would you say would uh, having having gone through the process of making the film what, for, for filmmakers listening to you what would you say would be say two two key lessons learned from the experience of shooting the leveling you could you could pass on to people
2: oh man i wish i i should have known you were going to ask me this and i always find this question so hard okay um, you can cut out this bit of me doing this thinking. What are two quite two things? Um, make sure you know why you're making the film, like why you are the person who has to tell this story, because it's very easy uh, to start to hate your film and to uh, start to feel like, you know, other people try and take ownership of it. And you need to know what your truth is with yeah. the film, Why why this is a story that you have to tell, And what the story, you know, what the truth is that you're telling, because I did not grow up on a dairy farm. This is not about me at all. But I knew exactly what I wanted to say. Mm. And that was the thing that I had to keep coming back to at so many different points. Um, And the other thing I would say was. um, Which sort of supports that, I guess, is is value yourself like you are important. And I think you can go through development, you can go through kind of you know, trying to get projects off the ground and you can start to become accommodating mm. to other people and kind of like, oh, okay, I'll I'll write that and I'll do that. And you know better than me or, you know, you don't need to worry about me or I'll do it for no money or, you know, all these kinds of things. And, you know, slowly but surely you can start to wear away this, you know, the the idea that you're important. And the fact is you are important. You are the filmmaker. You are the storyteller. And there is no story without you. And you need to, take care of yourself and make sure that you're being looked after and make sure you are in a place where you can speak up and speak out and have collaborators around you who are going to support your vision and uh, you know also share theirs but you know understand that this is this is your ship and you have to lead it so you need to feel good and safe and secure about about going out there and, and taking it on because it's not easy thing to do make a feature and um, you need to feel you know, good about, <laughs> good about yourself.
1: Uh, no, no. I hope that's some of the best advice I've had on this podcast. I think that's a that that, that brings it down to brings it back to you because I think you're right. In my in my in my much less experience, there are a lot of people that will tell you what to do. But what what those who those people are and whether they've got any validity is impossible mm-hmm. to judge at any one time because you can get trapped in a kind of please in teacher mode, as opposed to seeing your vision through to an end, which goes back to your first point, which is know why you're making the film.
2: Yeah, exactly. I th- And I think, you know, it's such a hard journey getting to the point of making it. And, you know, we, we accept compromises and we're willing to go on, you know, schemes and development training, this, that and the other, and listen to everyone else. And, of course, you've got to do all those things. But it's, you know, I, I found at the beginning, and, and I wish, when I walked away at the end, I was like, God... I had no idea <laughs> how important I was. Like I literally, you know, everyone was being so nice to me, and so, and they, you know, by the end, I just I couldn't have felt more. I mean, I felt supported all the way through, but you know what I mean. At the beginning, I was like, I really, you know, I've got to just sit up and and, you know, look in the mirror occasionally and go, you, you know, what is it that they say? You know, you are worth it. You know what I mean? Because I was mm. just like, you know, it, it's really you're going to face compromises and people telling you and giving you horrible notes and all these things. And you build up this kind of wall against all that. Um, but, but you also need to kind of, you need to just stay strong and just kind of be like, okay, I can do all that stuff. And, and because I can do all that, I'm strong and I'm good. And this is, fine. You know what I mean? I got this. I'm mm. good enough for this. And, you know, wherever you get that strength from, you need to keep that near you and keep that around you. And, you know, finding people, finding your first A D and, and your D P and the people, you know, and your cast, that whoever it is, the people you need, um, to kind of power you through, do it. Ask for it. Make it happen. Because because in the end of the day, this is you're gonna be the one, you know, mm. this is your farm. You're never gonna get to remake it. You know, so I just Um, value yourself. You know, I think that that's important and, you know, really connects with lessons I've learned over the last few years in terms of things like my own family life and just how I combine that with my work and, and, you know, feeling guilty about having other commitments in my life and just Mm. kind of, no, these are all important things that make me up to be who I am. So I am not going to apologize for needing to see my children at the weekend. You know, this like that is something I need and you need me to be a good director. So that's the thing we're going to have to do. And everyone, you know, it's good. I'm worth it. We can live with it. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny old thing, but I think, um, I think a lot of us suffer from it. And I think women possibly more or people who don't feel privileged and, and kind of used to sort of feeling entitled about things. You know, I think, I think we find it especially hard to get our heads around this idea that we're allowed to, we're allowed to ask for the things that we need, you know. Mm.
1: No, 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 no these these are all these are all brilliant points. Now, I think we probably should tell people how they can see the levelling.
2: Yes, the levelling is on uh, DVD and Blu Ray um, in in any good video store near you, and also on VOD. I think it's on iTunes. Um, it's on if you go to Peccadillo Store. It's or God, I'm terrible at these things. If you if you go to the dot com. It will tell you all the different platforms you can go to, but it's definitely on iTunes. I know it's going on Sky soon, which means you won't be able to rent it anymore. You'll have to buy it um, from these other platforms, but that's fine because it's supporting your independent British cinema, um, which is important, or you can see it on Sky. (laughs) Sky Premier from Monday. So that's um, exciting.
1: Excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.
1: Britflix.com podcast It's provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you.